You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. That's good. Welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. If last Sunday was your first Sunday. I was not here. I was on vacation in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It was glorious. My mother-in-law rented a little house for us in the woods, and every single day, bears went past the cabin. That was so, well, yeah, it was a little terrifying. It was pretty awesome and scary at the same time. We closed out our vacation by going through a hike in the woods to a waterfall, and literally right, like with a quarter mile left to the car, uh, there's a bear like 10 or 15 feet away. Like I'm breaking off a stick in the woods to look like a caveman, just in case we needed it. And it was so cool. Like we have a great story to tell because nothing bad happened. I just want to thank you for being a church who values the staff and uh, supports us taking time off. And I just also wanted to stop and say thank you to Andy. Didn't Andy Lynch do a great job last week? Let's just say thank you, God, for Andy. Yeah. Appreciate my brother. So what we're doing today is we are in week three of a series called This I Know. And this came from a little ditty that uh, was a song when I was a kid. It was real popular. I grew up um, as a son of an elder in the church. And uh, so we grew up going to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. And most Wednesday nights, anytime the lights were on, we were there. And so that was part of our life. I don't know about you, but you may have heard the song, even if that wasn't part of your life. I was taught this song. It's called Jesus Loves Me. Here's the words of the song. For all of your benefit, I'm not going to sing it today. However... Here's the words of the song. It goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. This song was actually written, let me make sure I get this right here. Thank you, Wikipedia, by the way. This song was written by uh, Anna Bartlett in around somewhere in the mid-early 1900s, and it was written as a poem to a song Sorry, it was 1860 originally it showed up. I apologize, I said that wrong. It was written as a poem to a song to a child who was dying. Doesn't that give a little meaning, a little context to the song itself? And she wrote it to comfort this child. Again, the whole idea of little ones being weak, but him being strong. Later, a second verse was added by a guy named William Bradbury around 1862. He added this second line. It says, Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. And what we're going to focus on in this little portion today is this part right here. Jesus loves me, he who died. So again, growing up at a Christian home, for me, uh, there came a point where I started asking some questions. How can I know that what my parents have told me all these years is true and trustworthy? I love my parents. I trust my parents. But there are a lot of religions in the world. And what I found out was a lot of the people I would interact with at work and at school, they didn't believe what I believed. I just, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. You just think everybody believes what you believe. And then you find out everybody doesn't believe what you believe. Well, how do I know I'm right and they're wrong? It's kind of arrogant to think I'm right and everybody else is wrong. So how can I know? So what God has done for me over the last 30 or so years, I can't believe I'm admitting that I'm that old, but over the last 30 or so years, he's continued to give me little snippets of information that have anchored my soul to the trustworthiness. So first of all, when the song says, the Bible tells me so, why is that even relevant? Who cares that the Bible tells me so? Unless the Bible is actually the words of God written through human authors for you and I to know who God is and what he's like and what he's doing and what he's active in the world doing. So the question that I had to come to, and maybe you've never wrestled with this, but the question I had to come to is, was there ever really a Jesus 
How can I know that he ever existed? And if so, did he actually die? And if so, did he actually raise from the dead? Some of those other questions I have about the Bible, about why does the God of the Old Testament seem so angry, or I don't know if I could believe in people raising from the dead, or talking donkeys, or separating of the Red Sea, or stopping the sun in the sky, or some of these things the Bible tells us happened. I don't know if I could believe all that. But to all of them, to me, the craziest one is dead people coming back to life. Not after a couple hours, not with some medicine or intervention, but three days later. That does not happen. So how can I know if this actually happened? So this week, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus died, and next week, we'll take a look at the resurrection. And here's my hope. I'll just be honest. Here's my hope. Number one, if you're a believer in this room, my hope is that you will be encouraged in your faith. Something that I say will anchor you again. And my prayer for you, and I'm going to pray this in just a moment, my prayer for you is the message you hear today will never get old to you. It is so easy to let this message get old to you. Don't let it get old to you. But then if you're in this room and you've got questions, or maybe you're at home, you're watching and listening down the road, and you've got questions and you're just not sure, maybe like me, you've got some of the same questions. Maybe something you hear today will help give you a nugget to anchor your soul just a little bit more. I want to give credit where credit is due. I read a book this week by a guy named John MacArthur. The book is called The Gospel According to God, and the book is centered on Isaiah 52, verses 12 through all of Isaiah 53, which I think goes also through verse 12. And um, it was extremely helpful. I only, I think I actually don't have time for the quote. I have a quote in my outline. If you have the outline, I think I actually get to the quote today. But if you want to know more about what we're going to talk about, we're going to be living in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And a lot of it came from here. So I just want to give credit and then I'll move on and just go ahead and teach the message. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, would you speak in this place? God, people are coming here with different stuff going on in their life. They're carrying a variety of sin and shame and baggage. Some are carrying questions. They want to know more. Some just need to be reminded of the goodness of God. And so God, right now, and would you just accomplish all of that through the power of your word? And uh, would you help me to get out of the way? So what's from you would be remembered and what's from me would be forgotten. And uh, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that sets the God of the Bible apart from all of the other religions of the world is something called predictive prophecy. You may have heard of a guy named Nostradamus. Go and read Nostradamus' predictions sometimes. Just look at him and tell me how detailed and accurate you think they are. However, the God of the Bible makes crazy amounts of accurate predictions. Perhaps none more than even just the book of Isaiah. Just to give you an idea, the book of Isaiah, which we're going to look at today, um, is quoted more than any of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. The gap between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament, for those of you who don't know, is a minimum of about 450 years, depending on which prophet we're talking about. With Isaiah, it's probably more like 690 to 800 years, so roughly seven to 800 years before Jesus. And Isaiah is quoted the most. In fact, he's quoted 65 times by Jesus and the New Testament authors. And he's mentioned literally by name 22 times. The reason that's powerful, one of my Old Testament professors said something, this isn't a quote, but he said something like this. His name was Daniel Dyke. And Dan said this. He said, if I can show you in my religious book that something came true, that was predicted in somebody else's religious book, that ought to give some validity 
to what is being shown over here because I have no control over what is being written there. Now, we would not say the Old Testament as we call it, those first 39 books are of another religion's book. We would say they're part of our history as Christians. Nevertheless, his point is sometimes when people are faced with predictive prophecy and trying to explain it to you, when they do, they say, well, people have edited and modified the Bible so profoundly over the years, you can't trust any of it. Except that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Go and do some research if you'd like. I can even point you to some great books and resources. We actually found something called the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. I don't know if you heard about this. In a cave over in the Middle East, we found some uh, scrolls hidden inside some jars. And when they carefully opened those jars, they found copies of the book of Isaiah dating to a couple hundred years before Jesus ever popped up on the scene. And what they found is those scrolls were 95% identical to what we had in our texts of Isaiah existing already. The 5% difference was almost all copyright errors, which you could clearly tell the differences between the two and places where the ink had splotched. That is mind-boggling. And what I hope that does to you is say, look, what you have in front of you when you're looking at a Bible is not a man-made conjecture, somebody writing ideas down. It is actually the word of God, and it is so testified to over the years. There was no document in all of history quite like it, especially in antiquity. Now, with that being said, the question is, what is in the book of Isaiah that's so important for us today? Well, I love that God preserved the book of Isaiah. I love that. And the reason I love it is because you can get the entire gospel message from the book of Isaiah. The entire gospel message. In fact, in what I'm about to show you, and we're not gonna have time for all the verses, but in what I'm about to show you, you will get enough of the story of the gospel between this week and next week that you will see the death, the burial, the resurrection, the justification, and the glorification of Jesus all in one and a half chapters from 700 years before he showed up on the scene. Imagine if I could tell you all of the teams in next year's NCAA tournament. I can tell you who won. I can tell you the amount of scores that they win by. I can tell you who the ultimate winner is gonna be. Imagine if I could do something like that. Wouldn't you come to me and say, now, Pastor, I really think we ought to go to Vegas. I'll pay. <laughs> There'd be a part of you that would go, I, don't, I can't explain it, but it's impossible. You don't even know who's gonna make it to the tournament yet. That's this kind of thing. You're gonna see in just a moment with unbelievable accuracy, Isaiah tells us what's going to happen to the Messiah when he comes. And 700 years later, he did it. And what I will try to do, again, we don't have time to go through all of it. I'll show you a little bit of Isaiah, then I'll show you a little bit of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. And that's important. I should probably mirror it for you. So Isaiah's over here. 700 years before these four books. And these four books are telling you these things are coming true now. So we're gonna look at this, and we'll 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 look at this. All right, you ready? Is that confusing? I hope not. Let's go ahead and start. Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up and lifted high and highly exalted. Well, first of all, we know this happened when Jesus actually went back up into heaven. We're waiting for him to return. He was actually literally highly exalted. But Jesus says this. Jesus actually says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. There are many passages in the Old Testament Jesus is referring to when he says it. 
I don't have time to go down the road with that because I think it would distract us. But there was no doubt that this is referring at least to when Jesus is hanging on the cross. So if you aren't sure, the Romans perfected something called crucifixion in their day. It actually began a few hundred years before them. It was handed down through the different uh, generations. I think it was from the Persians and then the Syrians and the Greeks. And then by the time the Romans got it, they had perfected this way to kill somebody in the most excruciating way possible. In fact, the word excruciating comes out of the word crucifixion to describe it for us. And that's important for us because what we see is when a person is hung on the cross, either they're mounted to a beam and then that beam is dropped on top of another beam or the entire beam is then pulled up and dropped down into the ground. We're not 100% sure, but when it happened, the person's joints would become disjointed. They would be pulled out from the jarring of hanging there and then your body shocking down. And Jesus says, or sorry, Isaiah says, my servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And this is important because it's starting to lay a foundation as we're going to see. See, Israel was waiting for a king, but what do kings wear? Crowns? Robes? Kings have power and wealth and money and glory. Everybody knows that. You pay taxes to make it a reality. You know it. But we don't look at kings and see an everyday person. We definitely don't look at kings and see weakness or suffering or pain. We look at kings and we see health and wealth and glory and power and might. And because we were told that one day there will come a king like David, everybody was waiting for a king. But Jesus didn't look like they thought he would look. In fact, let's take a look at the next verse, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. Does that sound like a king to you? What does this sound like? It's my opinion, and most scholars today, that Isaiah is actually looking past the cross, and now he's gathering with especially the Hebrew people, but the people of the world, and looking back on the cross in history as something that has happened, and he's doing this prophetically. However God has shown it to him, we don't know, and he's now describing what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to be going on in the people themselves, and you're going to see that in just a moment, but here what we see when it says his form is marred, again, remember, just being crucified would have pulled his joints, possibly even his spine uh, disjointed it, and been excruciating painful. But not only that, before Jesus is even flogged, before he's crucified, before he has a crown of thorns placed on his head, and we're going to get to those things, before all of that happened, he was tried over and over and over again. And in each trial, he's mocked, he's spit on, he's literally punched. The Passion of the Christ tried to display this to us. I'm going to show two pictures today. Neither one is overly grotesque, but I just want to warn you ahead of time. Here is kind of a before and after from the Passion of the Christ. This was Mel Gibson's attempt to portray this for you. And you can see Jesus just like anybody else, right? It just looks like an everyday person with a cool thing on his head. Then we see a Jesus at this point, not flogged, not crucified, but his eye is bruised and closed shut. He's got scars on his face. It's just a portrayal. This is clearly not a picture. This is something Mel Gibson came up with. But I don't know if you, any of you are boxing fans or last night there's a big fight, MMA fans. I'm not a huge fan. I like to follow from a distance. I just like to see who won. And I always get grossed out at the moment that they won and I stop watching because it's so gross to me. But you know for yourself, it doesn't take very many punches to the face to break a nose. 
It doesn't take very many punches to the face to break an eye, to bust it open, even mess a socket up, to get your eye shut, to bring open a cut or a wound. And Jesus is being punched and spit on over and over and over again. And Isaiah tells us his face will be marred beyond recognition. You won't even recognize him. 700 years before he showed up. Then he goes on, first Isaiah 53, we're going to get verse 1. You can read it later, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Let's talk about this first part. He grew up before him. He, this is the Messiah, grew up before him, this is God, like a tender shoot. Again, You have to picture and remember now the New Testament story, especially Luke and Matthew. They tell us Jesus was born to a very poor family in a very obscure town, kind of in the middle of nowhere, Nazareth in Galilee. He grew up in a very tender situation. It wouldn't have taken much to break the family dynamic. It wouldn't have taken much to make it a very difficult situation. And that's part of what Isaiah told us was going to happen. Like a root out of dry ground, out in the middle of nowhere, when Israel was desperately needing a Messiah, he would show up. He had no beauty or majesty. There are two ways the scholars look at this, and I tend to take the second one. I'll tell you the first one. The first one is, this is describing him in his crucifixion state. That you're looking at him, you're like, wow, that is not what a king should look like. He's not beautiful at all. All that blood and grossness, yeah, that is not attractive. I tend to think this is applying more to Jesus himself throughout his ministry. He was raised in a poor family, not a kingly family. He came from no uh, discernible Pharisee or religious background. Anybody where somebody would look at him and say, oh, that guy, he's got the right pedigree. He's got the right training. Nothing like that at all that would draw you to him. In fact, at one point, Jesus says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. In other words, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he's literally sleeping on the dirt, head on a rock like everybody else. And the point to that is, you wouldn't look at this guy and go, well, he has to be the Messiah. Look at the wealth and the power and the majesty of him. Instead, you look at him and go, yeah, I don't know. Have you ever noticed in our world how attracted we are to big and beautiful and ornate displays of power? But God said, when I send my messenger, I'm going to do it opposite. It's going to be an upside down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's going to blow everybody's mind. But see, if you know to look for it, again, this is in somebody else's book. Then when he comes, you go, huh, maybe there's something to this after all. He says next, verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Does that sound like a king to you? This passage is a little bit mind-boggling. Because to me, it so clearly points to just who Jesus was. If you follow the gospel stories when they describe him, he was rejected and despised, especially by his own. There were definitely some Jews. The first Christians ever were Jewish people going, this is our Messiah. But the majority didn't. 
and especially not today, not yet. And they literally treated him like this. Let me show it to you in Matthew chapter 27, verse 41. Jesus is actually hanging on the cross at this point. And Matthew tells us, in the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We'll believe in him. Somebody asked me uh, between the services, why didn't Jesus just come down and then get right back up, say, boom, told you. I mean, he's in charge. He could have done it, right? That'd be some like Magneto type magic, right? Like, you know, the, the nails just fly out and he comes down and he's like, now you get it? I gotta go, I'll be right back. He goes back up. And I said, here's the thing, it would have done nothing. Even if he could, it would have done nothing. And this person, I don't, I don't understand. How, how would I have done nothing? Jesus, in his ministry, before the crucifixion, is being challenged by this same group of people. And he looks at them and they say, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really that guy, give us a sign. And Jesus says, what sign could I give you you'd believe? A man could die on a cross and raise from the dead and you still wouldn't believe him. And three days after he died, he rose from the dead and they still didn't believe him. And it was his way of saying, see, it really wouldn't matter I can raise Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, but I wasn't there to see it for myself. Well, go ahead and ask the other 50 people who were here. What about the deaf person I gave the hearing back? There's a trick here somewhere. Is there? Because I do it in every village I go to. And the question for us 2,000 years later is, do we believe their testimony about what they experienced? Many of them died because of what they said happened, what they literally saw. Why would they lie about that? What gain is there in being killed for telling you what happened to their brother, their sister, their grandmother. What do they gain? It's not like they got rich from this. The text of Matthew 27 goes on. It says, he trusts in God. They're still mocking him. But God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, it's Jesus, they're mocking him. I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, 700 years earlier, Isaiah told us this is what would happen, and then it happened. Predictive prophecy is what sets God apart. He says, I can make known the end from the beginning. I can tell you what's gonna happen before it occurs. How can God do that? Because he's God. And the question for us is, do we believe it? Isaiah 53, verse four. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. What Isaiah is starting to get to here is a question we're going to answer in just a moment. But why did he have to die? And what he's starting to lay the foundation of, and we're going we're to hit this plenty here in a moment. He did this for us. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. This is twofold, I'm convinced, that I could show you in scriptures. Number one. He's literally talking about what we deserve. God is a righteous God, and he can't stand evil. In fact, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God can't stand evil, and part of the reason he can't stand evil is because of what it does on the earth. And so Isaiah's gonna use these big words like sin and transgression and iniquity, and they all mean something uniquely different. 
But what happens is, as sin is when we rebel against God, when sin continues over time, it becomes a pattern. And that pattern adds up to a selfish way of doing life. That would be what we would call iniquity. It's this bigger thing, this weighty thing, this pattern going on. And the reason that Jesus came is he came to bear the suffering. God hates evil. And don't we all cry out for justification? When you get cheated or ripped off or lied to, isn't there part of you goes, that's not fair. Don't you want just a pound of flesh, a little bit of goodness and rightness to happen in the world when we see some of the evils that go on against children or racism or whatever it might be and you think that's not okay. Do something about it. Get them. Why are you doing that? Because God is a righteous judge and he says evil must be punished. But his love is greater. And the reason Isaiah started to lay out for us is because God chose to place the punishment for our sins upon him instead of upon us. But those around him, the religious elite, they would say, nah. See that guy hanging on the cross? You're so powerful, save yourself. Come down from there. He can't do anything. That's because God is the one punishing him. And that's exactly what Isaiah told us they would say. I'm gonna show you another picture and if you have a light stomach, a squeamy stomach, you might, you might wanna look away. It's not, I don't think it's that bad, personally, it's to my opinion, but let's go ahead and put the picture up. Again, this is from The Passion of the Christ. This is one scene I do feel like Mel Gibson embellished a little bit, but you still get the point. If you haven't seen the movie, I really do recommend it, but it's not like a go grab your popcorn and friends kind of movie. It's kind of like a more sit by yourself and then cry a lot kind of movie. Um, in this particular scene, Jesus is being flogged. There's some debate historically as to exactly the details of how a flogging went. But Mel definitely shows very accurately one of the ways, probably the major way, being tied to a post or a tree on the ground, chained this way. And the Roman soldier would have had something called the cat of nine tails. Sometimes there'd be a Roman soldier on each side of the person being flogged. The cat of nine tails was a whip bound with a handle on it and coming out of it were nine straps. Each strap had either a piece of like rock or leather, or not leather, sorry, lead or something like that. Something that when the whip hit, it would tenderize the flesh and make it bruised. Then there were chips of bone or, or glass or stone or something that would catch and drag. Some people who were flogged, so this is where um, you may wanna cover your ears if you have a very soft stomach or turn the channel off if you have kids in the car or whatever it might be. Some people being flogged, lost eyeballs. Other people being flogged, um, lost internal organs, were literally ripped open. It was terrible. Some people died just from flogging alone. It's almost guaranteed Jesus received 39 lashes from the whip because the Hebrew people had a law that you couldn't go over 40. And so they would often do what's called the 40 minus one and they would count it out loud in case they counted wrong just to make sure they stayed within the law. And Isaiah 53, five says, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. John tells us in one of the four gospel accounts, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, where they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion was a profound form of torture that led to death, where some were flogged beforehand and they would pierce most likely their wrists with a long nail that would go into the wood. Just like in soccer, wrist is part of the hand. We have reason to believe this medically because there's a nerve that goes there. You can actually, if you push with your thumb, you can feel it. And if you squeeze hard enough, your fingers will curl inward and it's strong enough to both pierce, you go between these two bones here and to hold it up to a piece of wood. And in order to breathe, you would have to pull on those nails, take a deep breath and then go down again. There would be nails in the feet as they were crossed over. There's a spot on your foot. You could go right through the top, out through the heel, and both. And you would do this over and over and over again, struggling to breathe until you finally couldn't anymore. One guy by the name of Frederick Farah, he wrote a book called The Sweet Story of Jesus. Excuse me. <coughs> And he describes crucifixion. And I'm gonna read a long quote to you. But again, this isn't for the faint of heart. It's not overly grotesque. It's not. But it helps you understand what it was like. Here's what he says. On a cross, in tortures which grew ever more insupportable, ever more maddening as time flowed on, the unhappy victims might linger in a living death so cruelly intolerable that often they were driven to entreat and implore the spectators or the executioners for dear pity's sake to put an end to anguish too awful for man to bear. Conscious to the last and often with tears of abject misery, beseeching from their enemies the priceless boon of death. For indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramp, Thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially of the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all of these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the awful unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious 
an exquisite release. In other words, it was so terrible that the person hanging on the cross would beg to be released to death. John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and they found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. I sometimes think that we today are guilty of historical snobbery, me included. We tend to think people in the past were clueless and didn't understand all the great things that we understand today. There's no doubt we have some amazing advances in medicine, and I am so thankful for every single one of them. But people in the first century were well aware of what death was. When the Roman soldier came by, there were two men being crucified with Jesus. Both of them were still suffering and alive. And because the Passover, the Sabbath was coming, they had to get the men off the cross. So they broke their legs so they could no longer pull themselves up to breathe. They would suffocate to death. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already hanging and dead. To prove the point, they took a spear and stuck it up into his side, piercing, I think it's called the mitocardial sac. And when blood and water flowed, they knew that meant basically his heart had erupted. He was dead. So one of the things that's been said out there is that Jesus never died on the cross. He just suffered greatly. And so three days later, the disciples took his body, brought him out of the tomb, and he went and showed everybody, look, I'm alive. Given what I've just read to you, does that even make sense? Even if he hadn't died, could you see that man three days later walking around convincing everybody he's very much alive and well? I don't know about you. I get a little cold and I'm out for a week whining and complaining. And you may be tougher than me, but there's no way you're going through that and you're faking and fooling anybody three days later. There's one religion in the world that teaches that Jesus' body and his spirit are, are two different things. And his spirit left him just before he died because his spirit is um, eternal. Well, his spirit is eternal, but there's not one biblical passage that teaches us that a spirit left him. Jesus was God in the flesh. He became man. He dwelt among us. He was a tender shoot growing up under the eyes and the gaze of God who watched out for him, but he was fragile like every human being. And he died on a cross and it leaves us with this question. Why is it important that Jesus died on a cross? And I actually think Isaiah tells us, 700 years before Jesus ever showed up, he told us. Let's just take a look at a few verses real quick. Isaiah 53, verse six. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This passage is quoted many times in the New Testament, especially by Paul in Romans, but it's trying to make a point. My name is Matt Nickerson, and I am the chief of sinners. And this week, writing this sermon in a coffee shop in Bardstown, I was broken, and I just started crying. And the reason I started crying is because I'm well aware of all of my weaknesses. I'm well aware of my temptations. I'm well aware of my failures and faults and ways that I'm not yet who God wants me to be. I'm well aware of them. Maybe you're not. I don't know. But the Bible teaches over and over and over again that all of us have done this and something had to happen. God is too good, too righteous, too just 
to not let anything happen, to just ignore evil as if it's no big deal. It is a very big deal when babies are murdered. It is a very big deal when people are raped. It is a very big deal when evil occurs and everybody knows it. When a person is killed, it is evil. And something had to happen. And God could have just, say, set a flood and wiped everybody off the earth. He came close to that once. But he left a family that would lead us to Jesus because God is love more than justice, more than wrath more than righteousness, which is why John the disciple says it over and over and over again, God is love, God is love, God is love. How do I know? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Because we are so stubbornly sinful. We just keep turning away from God, but he is so ever faithful and true. He just keeps pursuing us because he wants us to know him. Isaiah 53 verse eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet out who of his generation protested? Nobody argued on his behalf. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. This is, again, fascinating. Even his disciples go and run and hide. It's been said, and I don't know if this is historically accurate or not. I heard this from another pastor. Sometimes pastors aren't always right, except for yours. But this pastor said, that it's been shown that if somebody were to come out of the crowd when a person was being crucified and were to say, I'll testify on their behalf, they'll go back, start the trial all over. The only problem is if they're found guilty, you both get crucified together for a false testimony. I don't know. I've not been able to find a document that says that's true. I'm trusting he read that somewhere. But I find it interesting. We're told that nobody protested on his behalf and his own disciples weren't there to speak up. 700 years. But Why? For the sins of the people, he was punished. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, he who knew no sin became sin that we might have the righteousness of God in us. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Though he never sinned, he took our sin that we might have his life. And while writing this message again, it it wrecked me. And part of the reason it wrecked me is because there were these two young girls behind me, some between 17 and 19 years old, in this coffee shop in Bardstown, Kentucky this week. And a youth pastor for one of them walked up and just started talking to them, recognized them, but hadn't seen them in a long time. And when the youth pastor left, they don't know who I am, they don't know I'm sitting there writing a sermon. I just started listening. And they went on to talk about their lifestyle. And they were raised in the church and they were raised in a Christian home, but their lifestyle, they were told, was antithetical to what God taught. And one of the girls very proudly and boldly said, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. I don't need people telling me that I'm wrong about anything. I need people who are gonna support me and encourage me and love me. And here's where I think the message of Jesus has been twisted over the years. So please, if you'll give me just 10 seconds to say this. I think we have thought of God as a set of rules and we obey the rules and God loves us and we disobey the rules and God hates us. 
instead of seeing God as a righteous father who desperately wants this whole world transformed by his love, to where good is good and evil is evil, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is redeeming and restoring all things, all things to himself. I think these two young girls somewhere along the way missed the message or didn't hear the message or never received the message or maybe it was portrayed poorly. I don't know. This isn't a judgment statement about anybody, but I don't want you to be sitting in a coffee shop and not get the message. The message is that God loves you. He crazy loves you. He crazy accepts you in all of your sin and brokenness right now. It's just he doesn't want to leave you there. He loves you too much to leave you there. And it always comes down to faith. Do I believe he knows more about my life than I do? Do I trust that he understands more about this world than I do? And do I accept what he says is good is good and what he says is evil is evil and that even when I've messed up and I've done evil, he still loves me enough to let his own son be crucified and hung on a tree that he might become accursed so I could receive life. And that, that opportunity still stands available for us today. I'm gonna close with this. Later on in the book of Acts, hundreds of years after the book of Isaiah, this be after Jesus dies on the cross, he raises from the dead. There's a wealthy guy, he's a eunuch. <clears throat> he's probably a very, very dark-skinned man. Being a eunuch means that his private parts were mutilated so that he could serve somebody in high power. He's probably very wealthy, and he purchased a, a scroll of Isaiah. And he was reading, almost guaranteed, Isaiah 52 and 53. And while he was reading Isaiah 52 and 53, God leaves, leads the disciple, the apostle Philip, alongside his chariot to share the gospel message with him because he knows the guy's wrestling in his heart, maybe like you right now. Here's a little bit of that conversation. Acts 8, 34 says this. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet Isaiah he's talking about? Himself or someone else? I don't understand. Like, it's so confusing to me. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? <laughs> I love that we're just completely left out of the entire conversation, except the eunuch heard the gospel through the book of Isaiah and Philip said, that's all you got. That's all you need. Let me tell you who it is. Let me tell you about his love. And the eunuch is so overwhelmed with the story that I just told you. The eunuch goes, why not me? And you have to understand as a eunuch, because of what had happened to his body, that probably wasn't even his choice. It was probably forced upon him. Could you imagine the anger, the shame? He was not allowed into the Hebrew temple to worship God. He was unclean. He could never come into the presence of God. And here is Philip saying, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you struggle with. God wants a relationship with you. And now because of Jesus, the veil has been torn in two and everybody's welcome. Everybody come in. Everybody can come and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ now. And it's so powerful, the eunuch goes, I want in. What do I do? And Philip's like, let's go. And in the next verse, it says, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Now both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. It was like, boom, that moment's over. However, he went on his way rejoicing. And I want to extend that opportunity to you today. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your life. But if you need Jesus, why not today? You could be baptized today or as soon as you get your questions answered. But why wait one day longer than you need to? You could come down to the end of the service, find somebody wearing a lanyard that says connect on it. 
you can go to our hub right out here, it says connect. Go to that table, say, I wanna know more about Jesus. Or you can always text the word connect to 317-565-4911. What I wanna do now is take communion. So hopefully you grabbed it on your way in. If not, run out now and grab it. Let me just read you one passage real quick. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you have ever wondered in your life whether God loves you, if you're good enough, all you need to do is look at the cross. With that in mind, I'm gonna start a prayer. Take the bread and the juice. When you're ready, talk to God. Tell him whatever you want. Let's pray. God, would you meet us right here, right now in this place and stir our affections for you? Thank you that in Jesus' name, all of our sins are washed away. Thank you that in Jesus' name, we have a right relationship with you again. God, I pray for everybody hearing this. Would you go before us and stir in our hearts and draw men and women and children to you? In Jesus' name.